Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. In the near future, Minnesota could have legal recreational marijuana. And right now, you can walk into stores and buy edibles or beverages with hemp-derived THC. That's an ingredient in cannabis that can get you high. And it was legalized for sale in Minnesota last July. Now, Minnesota lawmakers are considering a bill to legalize recreational marijuana for adult use. Right now, I'm talking about the future of legalized marijuana in Minnesota. How would it work? And what can we learn from all the other states across the nation that have already legalized marijuana? This hour, I'm talking with a cannabis lawyer and a journalist who has covered the process of legalizing cannabis in Colorado and across the nation. We'll also hear from lots of Minnesotans who oppose the legalization of marijuana here. And we're taking your phone calls. I want to know, what do you think about legalizing recreational marijuana in Minnesota? What questions do you have about how this would work here? The phone lines are open. Here are the numbers to call. Call us at 651 651- Two two seven six thousand. Again, the number is six five one two two seven six thousand. Or you can call eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. First, let's talk with NPR News politics reporter Brian Bax. He's joining us to fill us in on what is happening there in the state legislature right now. The details of the bill. Joining us from our state capitol bureau. Hi, Brian. Hi, Angela. Hi, good morning. So as I said, Minnesota lawmakers considering a bill that would make recreational marijuana legal. Tell us more about what is in that bill. What are the details? Yeah, this is quite a sprawling bill at latest check. It's about 300 pages long. So it's not just a matter of saying, yes, Minnesota will allow it. It's It'll allow it under these circumstances, on this time frame, and here's the business structure the tax structure, et cetera. And right now, the, the bill isn't quite matched up with the House and the Senate. There are some differences between the bills, so we can't say this is how it's going to be. But some of the parameters are are somewhat uh, set in. Mm-hmm. People will be able to buy. If you're 21 or older, you'll be able to buy, use, and possess uh, marijuana up to a certain amount. You can have in the House bill, it's about 1.5 pounds that you can have in your house. In the Senate bill, it's five pounds, but we expect that to change uh, throughout the process and and come closer to the 1.5 pound limit. You might be able to grow your own, have four to eight plants in your house uh, with some flowering at different stages. So you can't have like as as much to grow uh, that you could maybe sell off because this is only for your personal use. You could go to a store and buy marijuana. The potency is still to be determined. That's to be set up during a rules process. So they want to make sure that that this is left to some experts to figure out what is too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's uh, aspects of it related to uh, local ordinances and local uh, enforcement. Right now, the state is saying that we're going to set the terms local local governments might be able to set some ordinances around where the retail shops can be and and some of those things but that's still a point of contention uh there's there's talk about the business structure how many various areas of the of the cannabis and marijuana enterprise can you be involved in the growing the delivery the sales there's some talk that they don't want too many people to be involved in all of these aspects, they want to keep it so so the the big players in the marijuana industry don't come in and just keep keep the smaller enterprises from from flourishing here in Minnesota because that's been uh, concern in other states. Uh, there's some talk about the the hemp as as you talked about in, in your introduction. Minnesota authorized these hemp edibles last year, 
And there were some concerns that they didn't do enough to put guardrails around that. So the bill would address some of those, but it would also put them under the tax structure that they're thinking about here in Minnesota. So there's a lot of, a lot wow. of aspects of this, and, and it's still... It's still getting fine-tuned as we go. Wow. You had me at 300 pages there, Brian. My goodness. Yeah. But it's encouraging to hear that, that a lot of thought is going into this, all of these details, the tax structure, the possession limits. Uh, is there any one thing that seems to be you know, creating the most debate among all those things? Well, well there's a couple things. There's, there's uh, what to do about potential impairment concerns, whether it's in the mm-hmm. workplace or on the roads. Obviously, there's no roadside test as you would have in an alcohol where you could say this person is too impaired to drive. And so that is something that they're still trying to figure out as to how they will manage that. There's some money in the bill for drug recognition experts, the folks who can kind of, uh, the, the, the officers who can go up and say, you know, this person seems like they might be uh, impaired based on, on various factors. But of course, with marijuana, uh, the THC can remain in your system for quite some time. So it's not as easy as just saying, you know, here's what your level is at this point. We think you're, you're too impaired to drive. So that's one of the big concerns. The same with, uh, you know, whether employers can conduct their own tests or require uh, employees in safety-sensitive positions to abstain from marijuana. Those are concerns that, that are also still to be addressed. So Brian, a lot of people know uh, last year lawmakers legalized uh, those THC edibles, uh, edibles with hemp-derived THC. How is this this new bill that we're talking about uh, different uh, from what is currently legal in Minnesota now with, with the edibles? Well, of course, uh, the, the hemp-derived THC has a lower potency. That's the concentration of, of the, the active chemical that, that gets you high than the than cannabis, which has a potentially a higher potency. And so, so that's one of the main distinctions between the two. Uh, and, and also, of course, you could be able to buy it in the leaf form and smoke it, which you can't do in a lot of settings. Uh, there's, Minnesota has a medical marijuana program, but that's very limited. Right now, this, this bill would open it up to anybody 21 or older. You wouldn't have to have an excuse or a medical condition to qualify for it. Uh, the, the hemp bill is that, that was passed last year, a lot of people didn't really uh, see that coming. There, there were some discussions that, that happened late in the session, and come July 1st, it was all these products were deemed eligible to be sold in Minnesota legally. They could be sold before, but, they're, but, but the, the regulators were really not sure how to, how to police it, and they're still not sure exactly how to police it. So this bill tries to kind of tighten up how those hemp-derived edible products are offered and kind of the concentration that that can be offered and and the settings that they can be sold in. So, Brian, we're going to be um, hearing more about criticism of the bill in a few minutes um, because we're going to be hearing some of the testimony from people who've been showing up uh, to testify at hearings. Uh, But I want to know, what are you hearing in terms of of some of the biggest concerns that people have about the possibility of marijuana being legalized here in Minnesota? Well, we've heard from law enforcement about their concerns about being able to keep the roads and other uh, places safe. And we've heard from parents about whether, uh, even though this is 21 and older, whether it's going filter to filter down and become more accessible to youth and get them addicted. And they, a lot of the parents who have been testifying have said that this has been a, a gateway drug to kind of other uh, substances that, that their children used and be, maybe became addicted to. They say that the, the, there is harm to uh, brain development, and some people have pushed for raising the, the purchase age to 25, that those efforts haven't gone anywhere. 
And, and there's uh, folks really worried about just the message it's sending at a time when, when society is trying to keep uh, youth and others from smoking. Uh, they say that the state shouldn't be uh, advocating for uh, a marijuana, which you know a lot of people ingest through smoking. Um, one other aspect I didn't mention about this bill is it would also address criminal justice uh, elements. So, so in the past, marijuana uh, is has been used to uh, you could be convicted for possessing or or using or or selling marijuana up above a certain uh, possession amount, mm-hmm. and this would expunge people's records automatically if they have b- only marijuana convictions and there aren't extenuating circumstances. And it would set up a process for people who ha- might have had other circumstances in, in their convictions to get their process to, to get their records clear. So, so it has a couple aspects. Folks seem to be more on board with the expungement side of this than the critics are with with the legalization and decriminalization of marijuana. And and Brian, one last question. Based on what you're seeing, and again, 300 pages right now, a lot of details being worked out. Uh, in your opinion, how likely uh, is this marijuana bill to pass? And, and, and how politically viable is it? Will it get done by sure. the end of the session? Uh, we could see a vote on the House floor as soon as next week. It's been through all the committees there. Uh, and in the past, it has a ver- marijuana bill has passed off the House floor. Uh, with some Republican support and some Democratic opposition. I expect to see that as well this time. The big question mark is in the Senate, where the Democrats have that 34 to 33 seat majority. They've never taken a vote on the marijuana bill. And any member, DFL member, that falls off the board is a concern for for the legalization prospects because there might be some Republicans who come along, but they might want to see the Democrats have to put up the, the majority first before they join in. So it's still uh, it's still mm-hmm. a coin flip as to whether it gets done this year if they run out of time. But if they don't get it done this year, the conversation would pick up a- exactly the same point next year. They don't have to start over. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for your time. I know you're uh, very busy. I appreciate all that you've uh, added to this so far and helping us get up to speed on what is going on. Brian Bass, a uh, political reporter for NPR News, covering bills in the state legislature to legalize recreational marijuana. And Brian, will continue to listen for your reports and read them as well at nprnews.org. Thank you again. Anytime, Angela. All right. Let's bring in our our other guest right now and can let you know, uh, already getting lots of phone calls as we talk about this. The number to call is 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. We have with us joining us today, Ricardo Baca. Ricardo is a journalist and the founder of Grasslands, which is a marketing and public relations agency that focuses on cannabis. He was previously the cannabis editor at the Denver Post, which is a daily news newspaper. He's based in Denver, Colorado. Good morning, Ricardo. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Angela. Great to be here. Also with us is Jason Tarasik. Jason is an attorney and the founder of the Minnesota Cannabis Law Firm. Welcome back to the program, Jason. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Ricardo, uh, I I said you were the editor uh, there at the Denver Post uh, overseeing cannabis coverage uh, when recreational marijuana was first legalized in Colorado 10 years ago. So you've been covering this, writing about this for a decade. What is your biggest takeaway uh, that you want Minnesotans to know? What's what's the one thing that stands out to you that is really worth sharing with our listeners? Of course. You know, I will always think back to uh, 2012, 2013, when I was first stepping on the cannabis beat, recognizing that, you know, I, like many, I was a student of D.A.R.E. and Just Say No, 
very much a child of the 70s and 80s. And, and I think the biggest lesson learned at that point was I really had to retrain myself and kind of open up my mind for a new form of education that was very much in conflict with what I was taught in the 1980s throughout elementary school, high school, and beyond. That is, you know, really moving beyond this gateway drug theory and looking at cannabis from a more modern and fact-based perspective, a science-based perspective where this is a legitimate and efficacious medicine. Um, and it's been, uh, you know, the, the misinformation campaign on this plant, which is non-toxic, this campaign of reefer madness for more than 80 years, I just really needed to kind of reset, push, control, alt, delete on my brain and approach this with a ultimately new place and ready to learn because everything I'd been taught was basically um, uh, false, incorrect, and um, in many cases, an outright lie. So that's a big one as, as Minnesota preps for this next big step. So we need to hit the reset button and have an open mind and, and, and listen to all the different perspectives we're hearing on this. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. That's a big one. So you've um, written about the legalization of marijuana in states across the nation. Uh, and now I, my, my latest, I, we've looked this up. It looks like it's uh, about 20 states plus the District of Columbia um, that have all legalized recreational marijuana. But is there something unique about the Midwest or, or Minnesota that you think will play a role in what happens here, Ricardo? Oh, yeah, I think we're talking about bellwethers, right? And seeing what happens in the Midwest and in the American South, in many ways, makes these kinds of initiatives real. Um, you know, it's one thing for more progressive states like California, the West Coast, to be moving forward on legislation and policy like this. But, you know, it, we very much, people started paying attention when we saw Arkansas go medical, that was the first state in the Bible Belt really popping out. And then, of course, as we saw Illinois really good double down on adult use legalization, not only legalizing cannabis, but doing so via the state legislature. Um, you know, I think that really was huge, recognizing that, hey, the Midwest is here. Legal cannabis in the U.S. is very real. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And, and this is an issue that we are, of course, taking lead on in the U.S., but we're very much seeing expansion of, of this idea and this legalization construct go global, even as we see progress in Germany as recently as last week. So, so it's, it's very much encouraging for legalization advocates to see the Midwest really turning over this new leaf and opening their minds to a future legal cannabis industry. Jason, um, how do you describe where things currently stand with this? We just heard Brian Bax give us a, an update from the Capitol. We're hearing from Ricardo, who's looking at this nationally. What are you seeing? Well, yeah, I thought his reporting was extremely accurate. Uh, we are almost to the finish line, but the big uh, battle, I think, will be after the House and Senate vote on this on, on the bills, it's going to proceed to a conference committee where they're going to need to resolve the differences between the two bills. That's where a lot of the heavy lifting will occur. Um, assuming they can reach consensus on one version of a bill, it will head back to the House and Senate floor for a final vote, possibly to be signed by the governor in late May. All indications are, I mean, I recognize there's only a one vote majority in the Senate, but all indications are that they're going to get this done this year. Um, and I'm Personally, as, as a uh, legalization activist, I'm very excited. It appears that the DFL is unified on this, and it, it's going to get done.
Um, we know that Minnesotans can legally buy these THC products that are derived from hemp. Um, and so that was kind of a mess, basically, right? How that got passed. And there are lots of questions, still lots of questions on how what the regulations that are in place or not in place. Uh, what will be different this time, do you think? It yeah, needs to be different. Uh, a mess is fair. Uh, there was a lot of confusion around that. Uh, virtually no regulation surrounds those products right now. And a, a lot of people, including me, recognize that that was not a tenable thing. We had to tighten that up in some way. So the adult use legalization bill that's under consideration in the legislature has more robust regulation for these hemp-derived products. And significant, significantly, these hemp-derived THC products will be allowed to continue. You're still going to have these breweries selling these THC beverages. Uh, hemp-derived edibles will still be for sale. So there is a tension, I think, between hemp products and marijuana products nationally. Um, they, they're basically following um, different regimens because one is federally illegal, one is not. And there's always a tension between those two. But in my opinion, the legislature has struck a nice balance where they're going to allow each product set to be sold. What can you tell us about the supply and demand? How are sales going for the, the, the seltzers now that microbreweries are selling, the edibles? What do we know about whether or not people are buying them? It's been very interesting to watch even opponents of legalization soften their stance as they've seen the popularity of these hemp-derived THC products soar. Uh, I think perhaps a lot of Republicans won't admit it, but they, I'm sure, have recognized their constituents really like this stuff. So they're selling? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I, I spoke at a, a convention of a lot of our microbreweries recently, and I asked everybody to raise their hands if their brewery sold THC beverages. Every hand in the room went up. Uh, as far as I know, virtually every microbrewery in the state has THC beverages for sale, and they're selling very well. Uh, a lot of our CBD stores have started selling gummies and beverages and frankly, a lot of new stores have popped up. Yes, they're selling very well. Demand is there. It always has been there. But now you can purchase these things legally. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the possibility that recreational marijuana could soon be legal in Minnesota. And we're taking your phone calls. Do you want Minnesota to legalize recreational marijuana use? Or do you have some serious concerns about the bill that's being worked out right now at the state capitol? What questions do you have about how legal marijuana would work in Minnesota? Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800 242-2828. I want to get to uh, these phone calls that we're getting in right now and hear from some folks. Uh, Let's start uh, here in Apple Valley where we have George Realmuto on the line. And George, I understand that you are a former child psychologist and and you've treated patients who've had uh, some impairment due to marijuana use. Tell me about uh, what your experience has been with patients. Angela, thanks for having this forum. I think it's a critical time for a discussion with the, the general population. Um, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a psychiatrist. I was the medical director for the State Hospital for Adolescents in Wilma. Uh, so I saw a couple of uh, adolescents who used cannabis on a regular basis and had a persistent psychosis. Uh, what is, I, I treated sorry, schizophrenia George, for many years. George, what is, what is psychosis? What it, could you define that for us yeah. or describe what you're talking about? What is that condition? Yeah, psychosis, delusions, hallucinations, uh, thought disorder, inability to uh, understand. 
understand and perceive what's actually going on um, in, in, in reality. So, so as a, a trader, I think my staff were constantly reality testing with the adolescent because they'd go to school, they'd, simple things like they're learning math in, in, in the classroom and they think what they're learning is going to affect their brain or their body. That's a delusion. And, and this is... Have to, and have to that was connected to these, to these patients? To safer about that. So, George, these patients were using marijuana? These children? So, they had no predisposition for mental illness other than the fact that they were taking, that they were using cannabis on a regular basis. We could find no other reason for their psychosis other than persistent cannabis use. And so is that your concern so about this? The darker side to this, Angela, is, you know, it's, it's going to be a billion-dollar industry. Michigan started cannabis legalization. It's already a $3 billion industry. There's no way to stop a, a, an industry that that's that large. The darker side, though, is the health harms and mental health harms and addiction harms that were not changed. The bill did not add any safeguards around those issues. That's right. the concern for the Minnesota Medical Association, the, uh, the Psychiatric Society, the Child Psychiatry Society. That's what we are concerned about. Thank you, Dr. Rilmuto. Thank you for calling in. And and that is a concern we hear from a lot of people, the public health concern, particularly with young people. We know we're dealing with a mental health crisis uh, uh, and the health concerns. So, uh, Ricardo, let me ask you about this. In in states where we've seen marijuana legalized, uh, even though if this particular law is for for people 21 and older, uh, what do we know about the impact that this has had on teenagers and young adults? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we're at a place right now where we finally have a little bit of public health data that actually shows legal weeds impact on our communities, on our children. And it's a challenging conversation, right? Because I think that was ultimately one of the prohibitionists' greatest tools over 80 years of reefer madness. They were saying, what about the children? What happens to our kids when we legalize weed? Um, the data coming out of state health departments, as well as the monitoring the future study coming out of the University of Michigan, it really does show a very stark picture. And that is in every market that has legalized cannabis, there uh, the youth use rates has stayed level or even decreased. We're not seeing an increase in youth usage uh, in these legal markets, which I think is huge. And it's a huge win for regulatory systems and how it can monitor uh, the rollout of a legal cannabis program. However, there have been a couple studies uh, linking cannabis use to increased psychosis. As far as I understand, these studies have been coming from a small sample size, and they really illustrate the need for legitimate research. Um, You know, I don't need to remind anybody, but this is still considered a Schedule One substance underneath the Controlled Substances Act. And while the Biden administration is currently hosting a reassessment of that specific scheduling, because many people believe, including myself, that cannabis should be completely descheduled, 
Um, that is what we're looking at. So we're seeing a lot of encouraging public health data. That is not to say that cannabis use is not without its risks, and certainly for developing brains. Mm. Uh, any medical professional would agree. Uh, I am not one, but any medical professional would say that uh, people with developing brains, children under the age of 21 through 24, they should not be consuming any substances. And I think that's a fair mark recognizing that then when you're an adult, you should have the opportunity to choose what medicine and what intoxicants you choose to partake. And Jason, what do you say to people who you talk to uh, or who you are very well aware of are concerned about the impact on young brains, even though uh, this this bill, it's for people 21 and older, we're increasing access to it. So what do you what do you say to this? We're increasing access for adults. Uh, right now, marijuana arguably is easier for kids to get than alcohol. And that's because you have to go to a liquor store to buy alcohol. Frankly, if you are concerned about teens using marijuana, you should support this legalization bill because uh, like the other guest just mentioned, there is no evidence whatsoever that after a state legalizes marijuana, that teen use goes up. In fact, all the evidence shows that teen use goes down. And the fact of the matter is, it's called an adult use bill for a reason. We do not want kids using marijuana. I do not want my kids using marijuana. But I can advocate for this with a clear conscience because I know this bill will make it harder for kids to get their hands on this. And the bill also allocates tons of money to study the problem with teens and using marijuana as their brains are developing. That is something we're concerned about it. And that's why we're addressing it in the bill. Let's take another phone call from a listener as we talk about uh, the possibility that recreational marijuana could be legalized here in Minnesota, possibly soon. In Minneapolis, Sheila is on the line. Good morning, Sheila. What do you want to tell us? Hi, good morning. So I'm a physician, an addiction psychiatrist, and the program director for training physicians in addiction. So my perspective has to do with the seeing the direct effects in treatment. I think we haven't talked as much about the addiction aspect of this. And I think as, as long as we, we have more accessible uh, substance, there is a sense that it is less harmful. And when it's less harmful, you see more use amongst, particularly amongst the youth. So it is not an innocuous substance. I certainly see the results in terms of developing addiction, uh, impact on their mental health, and specifically psychosis that I think Dr. Real Muto has um, started to address. Um, part of what we need to do if this is legalized is we need to train a workforce. We need to increase treatment. Um, I'm a medical director of a treatment center, a residential treatment center, where I see all the time young persons who, have, who are admitted specifically because of cannabis. So uh, my point is that it really is not an innocuous substance. It won't eliminate the black market. The black market is particularly good about undercutting um, whatever the cost is and increasing the potency. And as we increase the potency, we know we increase uh, the problems from marijuana. Mm, thank you. That's Sheila there in Minneapolis, uh, an addictions psychiatrist. Uh, Ricardo, as we talk about the effect on mental health and uh, and young adults, older adults, uh, what do you say to that? That uh, it just makes makes things more difficult for some people. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and Sheila's right on the front that this is not an innocuous substance. However, it deserves to be said that this is a non-toxic plant. 
if you look up uh, with the Centers for Disease Control, for example, um, you know, they, they reference how we lose more than 70,000 Americans annually to alcohol-related causes. But CDC says simultaneously that we have never lost anybody specifically because they died from weed. So this is non-toxic. However, as I said earlier, it's not without its risks. Uh, I think the industry very much stands firmly behind the the fact that this is an adult use system, as Jason said, uh, this is not legalizing for children. Um, we already legalized it for some children in need, uh, children who are suffering from intractable epilepsy, children who are suffering from certain types of spasticity, especially as it relates to MS. Um, we already did that with a medical program to give children the medicine they need. However, this adult use program, it really is opening up a channel of wellness and of medicine that needed to be opened up a long time ago, it is important to recognize that, uh, you know, you can look up through the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is one of the most stringent medical authorities in the world, and they are out there saying this is an efficacious medicine for certain conditions, including chronic pain, including intractable epilepsy. So this is getting medical buy-in, but is it a miracle drug that can work on everything? No. And does it have its risks? Absolutely. Those risks are generally lower than other substances in the same way that the risk of cannabis addiction is lower than that of alcohol, than that of nicotine, and than that of opiates. So, um, you know, it has its risks, but it's still uh, low risk comparatively to these other substances that oftentimes we find ourselves in the same breath of. Jason, anything you want to add about uh this conversation about uh, addiction. Well, I'll, I'll just say that, you know, the market exists for marijuana right now. It's just an illegal market. So we this bill recognizes that prohibition has failed and that perhaps it's a better idea to stop criminalizing people for using marijuana, selling marijuana. And it, it's also a consumer protection initiative because when you, when you rely on the black market to provide the products, you don't know what on earth is in those products. This at least is going to regulate those products and they're going to be as safe as possible for consumers. I'm not going to say marijuana is harmless, but when compared to alcohol, it is safer. Let's take another phone call, this time in Cass Lake. Terry is on the phone. And Terry, what did you want to tell us as we talk about uh, how people are feeling about the possibility of legalizing recreational marijuana in Minnesota? Terry? Oh, well, uh, first of all, I'm really excited about about that possibility and, and very thankful for MTR to have this really realistic conversation of, of, of what what it can and, and then cannot do for our society. I, I I just am very applaud, applauding that. I, I'm one of these people that <laughs> started smoking marijuana at 13 years old just for fun and, and enjoyed it. And, 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 but, but in my career running heavy equipment and stuff, of course, I had to watch that. Your drug testing. So I always laughed as a union heavy equipment operator on pipeline that I had to do what's right. But I broke my back in 1993. And after many back fusions and they set my stomach even out and feed me through the front from a, with a vertebrae from part of a vertebrae from a woman at the Minnesota Spicer. And after going through that and, and others saying I'd never walk again and never have, I, I, I got to walk again and I got to have a life, but I could never return to a career. But I, but opiates and all the other things that the, the doctors and the hospitals gave me did not 
help me as much as simply smoking marijuana, relaxing, thinking positively, having a having a good outlook on life and, and, and being positive thinking and stress management. Those things help me, and marijuana helped me do that. But it's been that way my whole life as I'm near 70 years old. I, I, I would like to not be worried about what my neighbors think or, 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 or friends that just met me that, geez, he smokes marijuana. I smoke with the pain. I, my mother went blind from glaucoma, and brother and sister had it. One brother was going blind, too. I, I get a kick out every year. I go see for the last 15, 20 years, my eye doctor, get it checked. He says, Terry, without, without your marijuana use, your pressure would have, you would have had glaucoma. You would have been a real candidate for possibly losing your sight like your mother. Um, there's many things like that in my life, and, 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 and yet I live in a northern community, a wonderful reservation that I'm proud to live my whole life in northern Minnesota with Indian people who understand more natural remedies. Um, yet I live now for the last 15 years down in South Texas and uh, on the ocean as <laughs> I retired, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, so- I see the struggles of Texas, too, without legalizing marijuana. They've made criminals out of so many people in that state and, and filled their prisons with people that were doing nothing but maybe less less the average than even of course alcohol but um okay I, I, so I, it sounds like you're saying you you've had chronic too. back pain and um the marijuana use is has helped you with that and and has helped you be less reliant on on opioids uh for pain management and, and ricardo do you hear stories like this as well you know, it's it gives me goosebumps every time, Angela. Uh, even even eleven years after my uh, starting journalism on reporting specifically on cannabis, these anecdotal stories are so powerful. And really, the entire legalization movement is wrapped up in that. That is where our roots are. Um, that is how we got here to begin with. When we think about the first medical um, legalization to happen in California more than 20 years ago, that was really born out of um, the patients sharing their stories, which is so powerful. And thankfully, we're starting to slowly see these anecdotes turn into actual research that then mirrors um, what these folks have found, what these patients have found, and gives them reason. Uh, for an example, you know, Dr. Ziva Cooper at UCLA is heading up their Cannabis Research Institute out there, and she's doing phenomenal work studying cannabis as a potential painkiller, an, effica- uh, an efficacious painkiller, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. I presented last year at South by Southwest specifically on that topic, and it's it's adding scientific know-how and credibility to the stories of people like Terry who have been cannabis patients their entire life and who have been kind of laughed away by their doctors and their communities. And now it's it's helping us understand that this is an efficacious tool to manage a lot of our a lot of our ma- wellness and medicinal regimen. It's it's pretty amazing. All right, let's uh, take uh, more phone calls here that we're getting from listeners as we talk about the possibility of Minnesota legalizing recreational uh, marijuana. Uh, Also getting some calls from out of state. Uh, Right now, we have Aubrey on the line. And Aubrey, you're calling from Houston, Texas. Uh, You're the director of Every Brain Matters. And uh, what is your story, Aubrey? Where where have you lived and, and what has your experience been with legalized marijuana? Well, thank you for having me, Angela. I am from ground zero of this marijuana nightmare expansion movement, Pueblo, Colorado. 
And I never knew um, this legal marijuana would be so toxic in my life. Um, my son started dabbing the high-concentration THC that Ricardo Bacchus is calling medicine, and he started hallucinating. He was looking in a mirror at a hallucination, plotting to kill my husband and I. This power of this plant has been disrespected, and I am so sorry to hear that the Minnesota legislators are have a 300-page document funding this predatory addiction for profit industry. This, these products are so toxic, they are causing severe addiction. It, the addiction rate in an adult used to be about 10% of marijuana users. Now NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, is reporting that 30% of marijuana users, which, let's be real, it's not marijuana anymore. It's an industrialized THC for people to profit Why vulnerable populations like children and disadvantaged communities are preyed on by this industry. So now that addiction rate is at 30%. Now they have a condition called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, where marijuana users are industrialized THC users that use state-sanctioned products that come from Colorado that they started cannot stop vomiting, they become dehydrated, and they're dying of organ failure. My son experienced many episodes of cannabis-induced psychosis, and I was a mother alone in a state that had people like Ricardo Baca lying and deceiving the public about this. And now my son, I had to get him out of Colorado if he was going to survive. He did achieve three years of sobriety at one point, which cost us everything. We had two homes. Um, I had to, it was a nightmare. But now because these products are, the hemp products are legalized here in Texas um, where we moved to, he went back out. He's been using for two and a half years, and now he has the CHS, the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. He is skin and bones. He looks like he's a meth user. He is a THC addict. Aubrey, and so, Aubrey yeah. I, I, I'm so glad that you called in, but I, I want to give our guests an opportunity to respond to this. And, and I know that uh, many parents are worried, and, and they've had personal experiences where they've seen uh, or people in their families who they love uh, suffer harm. And so, Ricardo, she's calling uh, and talking about the state that, that you live in. Uh, she was living in Colorado when this happened. And I'm sure you've heard stories from, from families in your 10 years of covering this where there has been harm. Um, what would you say to Aubrey? Oh, of course, I get it. You know, um, many people have experienced tragedy with any number of things, be it an addictive substance or not. Um, I would point out, uh, yes, I am calling cannabis medicine, and I truly believe that. I have witnessed its power. And at the same time, it's not only me. Uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association and the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Uh, these global organizations are coming out recognizing the efficacy of this as a plant-based medicine. Um, again, we've already said this is not without its risks. And I've always also said that cannabis isn't for everybody. However, this is a truly thrilling time where we are opening up options for our wellness and options for our medicine, um, because previously this has been made illegal. And we've watched this literally save people's lives, not only adults, 
but also children. I think I think back to the late Charlotte Feige, um, a, a young medical marijuana patient and advocate who got swept up in the movement after she was interviewed by Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN years ago. It really is compelling. This medicine is saving lives. And is it complicating things additionally? Yes. But in from my perspective, that is that is worth it to be able to open up this wellness channel to a larger segment of the population that needs it. Just look at the increasing number of senior citizens who are using cannabis topicals and, and, and also ingestible cannabis to really make themselves feel better. And a lot of that is chronic pain. A lot of that is conditions that we know cannabis is an efficacious medicine for. And Jason, again, it, it's hard to hear from someone who loves someone who has been through trauma. What do you say in response to that? I mean, that's a horrible story we heard out of Houston, Texas. And I'm very sorry for that mother and her experience and for her son. Um, all I can say is that those stories, um, in my experience, are rare. Um, they exist. And, you know, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but there's often a correlation causation issue with the onset of mental issues you know was there an underlying issue that the cannabis may have exacerbated maybe i mean again this is why uh marijuana use is not for kids you know that's why we're calling this an adult use bill i think they are children seem to be particularly susceptible to mental problems if they start using marijuana when their brains are developing that's why we're trying to prevent that um it's a horrible story and yes, there have been testifiers at the Capitol with similar stories, and I feel awful for them, but uh, they seem to be outliers. And, you know, I had the pleasure of attending the 10-year anniversary of legalization in Colorado. We had the governor, a state senator, I'm sorry, a, a actual U.S. senator and the, and the mayor of Denver, and they all were not very receptive to legalization when that idea was being presented 10 years ago, but they all came and said, and they had no incentive to do this. They said, you know what? legalization advocates, you are right. This was the right thing to do. You mentioned uh, folks testifying at the state capitol. Um, We can listen to some of the Minnesotans who have worries. Uh, Last week, uh, a coalition of Minnesotans who oppose uh, the bill testified at the Capitol. They ranged from uh, the State Trucking Association to the Minnesota uh, Catholic Conference to parents sounding the alarm over addiction, as we've already heard this morning. But I want you to listen to uh, these folks who testified. Minnesota may think it is ready for the proposed legislation of cannabis, but we question whether it is really prepared for this major push to expand access to cannabis. We often hear that there isn't enough research, but there are now 20,000 peer-reviewed articles on the effects of cannabis use, and we do not feel that the current legislation has considered what the long-term effects will be and not enough is being done in the bill to protect the safety of the citizens of our state. We are Heather and Randy Backus, uh, parents of a forever 21-year-old son who lost his life due to cannabis-induced psychosis and completed suicide in July of 2021. At the time, our son was living in a legal-use state, Colorado. He purchased legal marijuana, and because it was legal, he was misled to believe it was safe. It is not safe, and he is just one of many young people whose lives have been lost or derailed that are examples of how high-potency cannabis is detrimental to the developing brain, causing psychosis, depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. HF100 and SF73 are not written with guardrails in place to keep Minnesota safe. 
That was Judson Bemis, the co-chair of Smart Approaches to Marijuana Minnesota, and Randy and Heather Backus. They testified uh, last week at the state capitol in Minnesota in opposition to the, the bill to legalize recreational marijuana. Now, another concern, another big concern is intoxicated driving. And here's more testimony from last week when critics of Minnesota's legal marijuana bill spoke at the capitol. Uh, this is Sheriff Kevin Torgerson from the Olmstead County Sheriff's Office. Listen to this. For the near, nearly 20 years, the number of fatalities on our roads has been reduced nearly in half by a program called Towards Zero Deaths, TZD. It's a collaborative organization run by the state and organized by the state, but working with law enforcement all across our state and educators, public health, etc. When other states legalize marijuana, the number of traffic fatalities has increased, which is opposite of what some people are trying to put across where one or more drivers are impaired by marijuana. I'm very saddened every day I hear these comments that the increased loss of life in our roads is simply collateral damage for those who wish to put a foreign substance in their body. That is Sheriff Kevin Torgerson from the Olmstead County Sheriff's Office. Um, Ricardo, how big of a problem um, has intoxicated driving um, been in Colorado and other states um, as it you know, pertains to marijuana being legalized? It's been a real problem, um, both from the fact that people are getting behind the wheel when they shouldn't be, um, but I would argue the larger problem really stems from what uh, your colleague Brian shared with us earlier, Angela. It is, uh, this was the subject of my second TED Talk, it is impossible to accurately measure the intoxication from cannabis because it is fat soluble. It does stay in our bodies for a longer amount of time than other substances. And so currently most states are using a blood test that has no grounding in science or reality. And that is not an ideal way to be making measurements and determinations on who is or is not driving while under the, um, uh, you know, impaired or intoxicated. So I would argue the lack of uh, testing is, is a real problem. But also, if we're being real, we don't want anybody getting behind the wheel on our roads, um, you know, intoxicated by any substance. So of course not. And I know the state of Minnesota is already uh, setting aside some funds from this program to do a heavy public education campaign. And the truth is, public education works. We educated our public decades ago to wear seatbelts and to not drink alcohol and get behind the wheel. Of course, it still happens because personal responsibility is still what it is. Um, but we've seen these educational campaigns roll out in Colorado, um, and, and, it, and it's very effective. It starts important conversations, especially because we are relearning our, to have a modern relationship with cannabis in this newly regulated market. And we just need to be realistic about it to recognize and to educate the masses of all ages that it is not okay to get behind the wheel of a car when you're intoxicated by any substance. I want to get to um, a business aspect of this, Jason. Uh, the legal marijuana industry currently dominated by white men. Dispensary owners and growers are overwhelmingly white. And in a 2021 report, the publication Business Insider found that 70% of top executives at the largest publicly traded cannabis companies were white 
men. So uh, what do you feel that that, uh, Minnesota and other states can do uh, to address the inequities and who gets to profit from legal marijuana? I know that activists and farmers of color here in Minnesota have raised concerns about equity measures in uh, Minnesota's bill that they don't go far enough. What are your thoughts on this, Jason? Yeah, I think that um, the focus on on social equity was something missing from the initial legalization bills in places like Colorado and Washington. That is something, uh, frankly, I'm proud that Minnesota is not missing. That is, uh, we're laser focused on trying to address social equity with this bill. We are providing an advantage to what we're calling social equity applicants in the licensing process. Uh, We are giving... um, an advantage to um, people applying for licenses from historically poor neighborhoods. Can't use race as a factor because that's unconstitutional, but we're doing what we can to try to level that playing field and try to account um, for the devastating impact of the war on drugs. And uh, another thing we're doing is we have many different license types and many of those are sort of smaller type industries like cannabis transporter delivery people. So we, we recognize that um, entering the legal marijuana market is a capital intensive uh, initiative. In other words, you need a lot of money. And, and we're trying to carve out areas where perhaps people of color can enter the industry, um, trying to lower those barriers. And we're providing for grants through the legalization bill to help uh, entrepreneurs um, enter this industry. So we're recognizing what's gone wrong in other states, and we're trying to account for that through this bill. And in our last couple of minutes, Ricardo, I want to ask you about this uh, a legal uh, question, um, the expungement of past marijuana-related convictions. Uh, here in Minnesota, Black Minnesotans are five times more likely to be arrested for marijuana, marijuana-related crimes than white Minnesotans, despite similar levels of use. And that's according to a 2022 analysis by the Minnesota Reformer. And so, Ricardo, what are your thoughts on this? What, what have you seen other states do to approach this, these uh, marijuana-related convictions? Yeah, this is a huge uh, important part of legalization that you need to make sure to right the wrongs of the past. Uh, The war on drugs is very much firmly rooted in institutional racism. Um, We are looking at uh, the creation of a market where there was none before, um, but ultimately prohibition was very much a result of racism and wishing to keep people of color down. And, and, and in many ways, it's, it's ruined untold number of families. And so this automatic ins- expungement that's a part of the Minnesota legislation is really encouraging. And we have seen that happen in states like California. Um, states like Colorado were a little bit more complicated because of our state constitution. We had to do it a different way. Um, but I'm glad to see that being prioritized mm. right now. And as Jason was talking about, too, it's just very much a that we are recognizing the failures of previous social equity initiatives in Massachusetts and Illinois, especially, um, which were really... I'm sorry to interrupt you, uh, but our time has come to an end. But this is clearly a conversation we need to keep having and to hear all the different perspectives on this. Uh, I want to thank our guests uh, for their time today. We've been talking with Ricardo Baca, a journalist and the founder of Grasslands, which is a marketing and public relations agency that focuses on cannabis. He previously was the cannabis editor at the Denver Post. And also here, Jason Tarasik. Thank you, Jason, an attorney and the founder of the Minnesota Cannabis Law Firm. This conversation today was produced by Samantha Matsu. Be safe, everyone. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9.
Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.